Happy church, as I like to call you, it is that time. Get settled in your seats, grab your Bibles, and uh, may the Lord prepare our hearts, amen? Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we acknowledge your presence here where two or three are gathered. Uh, there you are in the middle of it all, God, and to do good, to help us, not to harm us, to correct us out of... Uh, uh, wrong directions and foolish thinking uh, to give us uh, wisdom and life. We look to you, prepare our hearts, open us up to these beautiful truths. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Out of the 31,102 verses in the Bible, there's always one. There is one that rises to the top. I call it the king of all verses. We put it on our cars. We print it on our t-shirts. We'll even inscribe it on our bodies. We'll lift it high for all the world to see on any sign at any gathering where a lot of people are looking and watching. Christian-run businesses often display the verse where they can on the bottom of a cup there and in and out. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, I almost led someone to the Lord just picking up the cup and saying, hey, do you know what that is? And she goes, no, I've been wanting, I've been wondering, what is that? At in and out And I just explained it to her and she goes, oh, this is so weird. I've been thinking about God a lot lately. I go, it's all of the, you know, it's all a plan, <laughs> you know. So yeah, there it is again. And yeah, when believers who are famous get their 15 minutes in the spotlight, we get creative. <laughs> we get creative. So that famous time Tim Tebow got in his eye black, as it's called, John 3.16, there were 90 million Google searches. What is John 3.16? 90 million and I can assure you that they were not Christians of any maturity because every believer knows and loves John 3.16. And so, yes, indeed, it's an important uh, verse. And so uh, with Christmas still lingering in the air and on this morning after, um, I thought it would be nice to take a brief time out from our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Acts. That's what we do if you're new here, verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, straight through. Uh, but now, you know, sometimes on holidays, we take a little uh, brief time out, and uh, we're going to look at the truth of 316, if I can call it that, uh, to fill our hearts with wonder afresh and anew. And you can join me in reading the verse if you'd like. It's on the screens here. Reading, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 66 books make up the Bible, 1,100 chapters, 783,137 words, if you're counting in King James English. But it all boils down to this one sentence, a simple, solitary summation of the whole story. Uh, Seven wonders are packed in this simple verse. Ready, note takers, because we're going to talk about them one by one, and here they are. The greatest being God, the supreme virtue, so loved the world, the priceless gift he gave his only son, the widest invitation that whosoever, the easiest escape believes in him, the most dramatic rescue should not perish, the most precious possession, but have eternal life. Let's dive in, shall we, with the greatest being, God. Three little letters, big, big being. Yes, indeed, the greatest being of all, the self-proclaimed author of life, the self-professed first cause. He says that he made the worlds, the planets and the universe in the beginning, but before that, he is the beginning. He calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, says the Lord Almighty. He is great being indeed. Now, we wouldn't know much about this invisible creator, not the details about him for sure, unless he disclosed the information to us. So very interestingly, though, he's left the world with his calling card. It's called uh, creation. And the Bible says that God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen through the things he has made. In other words, uh, creation has uh, his fingerprints all over it. And uh, what's more, the Bible goes on to say there in Romans chapter 1, that God has made the truth of his existence known to every single person. He's made it plain to them in what he calls a conscience. He's encoded the knowledge of two things through creation and conscience, that he exists and he is great. That's enough light to start anybody on the right path to heaven. And so, yeah, there's the truth is out there, and it's in here, the general idea anyway, but it's also hard to grasp because of our sin nature, uh, which kind of warped our understanding of who he is. And the Bible says that mankind exchanged the truth that could be known about him uh, for a lie and worshiped created things instead of the creator who's blessed forever. And so as a kind gesture... God has revealed greater detail about who he is to help us not grope around in the dark and make the mistake of calling the things that are not God, God, and really, truly losing out. I mean, so he starts with the first two commands. He says, hey, there are no other gods before me, so don't have any. There are no gods other than me. So worship me alone. 
And secondly, don't bow the knee to uh, an idol because you'll miss out. You, you'll, you'll miss out, you know? And uh, so he gives revelation. So he says, first chapter, first verse, it's God who made everything. He made the heavens and he made the earth. He just starts right from the jump, letting us know. Lest we start worshiping the mountains like they do in Japan. I spent four years there, and they worship, they consider Mount Fuji, which is a beautiful mountain, as a deity. And so they go and they do ceremonies there, and they bow to Fujisan, you see. But God said, let me explain something to you. Don't worship the thing that is created Worship the creator who made the things. I mean, even today people believe and attribute healing power to rocks and crystals, right? You can go in and ask somebody at the counter and they'll tell you which rock will cure whatever problem ails you. And the Lord will say, "Um, it's actually not the rock. I had a boss, let's call him Bobby, because... You're catching on. That's all I got to say. And Bobby was new into new age. And one day he said, man, things are lining up and the universe is trying to get a hold of me. And I said, dude, you know I'm a pastor, right? I'm going to tell you, listen, the universe doesn't have a mind. The sun, moon, and stars, they're clueless. They don't know who you are. (laughs) And if they did, they wouldn't care. You know why? Because they don't have emotions. They're inanimate things, man. But what he's doing and what contemporary people do by saying to attribute the supernatural workings of God to the universe is to say something's out there that's supernatural, but I don't want to admit that it's God because then I'd have to bow the knee to a Lord and have moral accountability. I'd probably have to repent of my sins. That if I just talk about the universe or you worship the mountain, (laughs) I can have my cake and eat it too because I'm acknowledging some sort of deity without obligating myself to live a holy life. And that's why we do it. But, you know, uh, God just keeps coming at us. This great God, this great being who could speak and, and make a galaxy, Hebrews says, out of nothing. He just speaks and wills it into being. And it's there. And it's by his power that he holds all things together. That he wants to have a relationship with us. This great being, this is good news. Three quick things about him and then we'll move on. He's all knowing, that word is omniscient. Right? I love what the psalmist says. Man, Lord, you know everything. You know everything about me. You know when I rise. You know when I, when, when I lay down. You know when I go out. You know when I come in. You, you know the secrets of my heart. You know about all my problems. You know how I feel. You know how I got into this predicament. And you love me. You see, he knows everything about us. He says, the psalmist says, even before I say something, you know what I'm going to say. And Jesus says, listen, it it goes deeper than that. Every hair on your head he knows. Every breath you take, every burden you bear, he knows it and feels it. This great God, this greatest being. 
And he says, cast those cares on me because I care about you. And then secondly, he's omnipotent. It means all powerful. I love what he says. First person to Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah, I'm the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Come on, think about it. If I can speak and make the universe, what are your problems for me? He's really saying, don't sweat the small stuff, man. And if you've got me in your life, the greatest being of all, who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, then what you got to worry about? Jesus said, could you guys stop acting like unbelievers, like pagans who don't have uh, the, God as their father? They run around, they're nervous about every little thing. Oh no, the money, oh no, the clothing, oh no, this and that and the other thing. He says, stop it. Why do you act like there's no God in heaven who cares about you? He's a great being, and he's everywhere at once, omnipresent. God can be an ever-present help to you because, you know, he doesn't have to drive to get to you. You know, he's right there. We're always like, God, where are you? He's like, right there. I'm right here. You know, the psalmist again, where could I go from your spirit? Where can I flee and run and hide from you? If I ascend into heaven, well, you're there. If I make my bed in Hades, the place of the departed dead, behold, there you are again. If I take the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Even there your right hand will hold me fast. This great being We want to run and hide. That's our job. He wants to chase us down and bless us. That's his job. This great being, this all-powerful God, all-knowing, ever-present, the God who wants a relationship with you, that's clearly evident because he's the God who so loved the world. This he displays now as the greatest conquering virtue, the mother of all other virtues, really. Now abide three things, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13, right? Why is it the greatest? Because when we get to heaven, faith and hope are done. Because we don't hope for what we have, and we don't need faith for what we see. But love reigns here and there. So the greatest of these is love, and it's in his heart because he'll reveal himself in an autobiographical statement, God is love. So if you took the pure essence of what is love and you poured it into human form, God the Son, you're going to see, because he is the essence of what love is. Moses asked for more information. He already had a lot. He had... uh, He stared into the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And he remarked about it. He said it was burning, but the bush wasn't being consumed because he's self-existent. He's the self-existent one, the eternal one, which is what his name means, Jehovah or Yahweh. He says, what's your name? And he says, well, I am who I am. I was who I have always been, and I will be who I will always be. That's what the I am, that's what Yahweh means. I am, was, is, and will always be. That's who I am. 
And, and so he says, the Lord, the Lord, to Moses, the compassionate and gracious God, speaking of who he is, I'm slow to anger, spilling over with love and faithfulness. This is in his heart. You know, he, spilling over, <laughs> that's what he's saying. And, and it's not surprising, right? But it's something we need constant reminder of because we are twisted. We just, we are twisted. And, and the devil, the name devil means slanderer. It means to talk smack about somebody. So the devil's always telling you, oh, God's out to get you. God doesn't love you. This and that and the other thing. And just like the first lie, go ahead and eat. Because you know what? God knows that when you eat it, something good's going to happen. And we can't have that. You'll be like him. And you'll be so smart. Yeah, you see. And so we need the reassurance that God is love. I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. He kept telling people that. John chapter 3. I didn't come to judge people. So they dragged this woman half clothed, caught in the act of adultery before him and throw her down and say, we're supposed to stone somebody like that. And, she, and, he, and he gets rid of the guys and then he looks down and he says, hey, where are your accusers? I don't, and she says, I don't see them. Yeah, because they're gone. And guess what? I don't condemn you either. Get up, go your way, and sin no more. That's the part everybody leaves out there. <laughs> you know. I don't condemn you. I came to Jeremiah um, 29, 11, you. To give you a hope and a future, not to harm you. Can you get that through your head? Or for, through your heart? And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me. If you're weary, tired, empty, lonely, hurting, come to me. I'll give you rest because I am lowly in heart. I'm humble. I don't have the like ears on a Doberman that look like, I'm going to get you. No, that's not me. I'm more like floppy, like a retriever's ears, you know, just kind of whatever. It didn't work. But <laughs> if you're a dog person, you know what I mean. He says, come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest because I love you. And a little clarification, though. Biblical love is different in, in several ways from how the world thinks. So don't, don't mistake it for some slippery, syrupy kind of love that says, whatever, everything's cool. We just love everybody all the time. Uh, no. <laughs> love is patient, kind, gracious, not rude, uh, not envious, not jealous. We get all of that. But it also says something in 1 Corinthians 13 that people forget. Love doesn't affirm wrongdoing. True love has a moral component. It doesn't take delight in sin or evil or theological error or falsehood. It's not loving to affirm somebody uh, to do something destructive to them. Oh, you've been shooting up. Uh, keep on doing it. Be you, man. You got to be you. You got to be true to yourself. Well, what kind of person would say that kind of thing? And yet we do it all the time, or the world does it all the time, thinking that's love. It's just, you know, no need to change or call somebody out for something. Well, you know, the apocalypse is coming, so people put bumper stickers on their car like, who would Jesus bomb? Right? Meaning they misunderstand love. Love made a way to escape the wrath and judgment of God. That's what love did. But for those who won't take the escape, the apocalypse is coming. Why? Because of love. Because of love of goodness. Because of love of protecting people. And because of the love of justice. 
to do away with all wrongdoing and wrongdoers that cause pain and suffering and corruption. All of that. That's his love, the highest love of all. And then, of course, uh, in the Greek, it's agape, that this word means. And it didn't exist until the New Testament time. There are eight words for love in Greek, not like our dumb one word, love, which has become so bland, it just doesn't mean anything because you love sushi, you love ice cream, you love your grandpa, you love your mom, you love your little newborn baby, you love everything. So what difference does any word mean? (laughs) Let's spit that out, right? What does it mean? Well, agape means this unconditional regard to be benevolent without condition. You see, it's God's kind of love. It loves for the sake of loving without regard of personal gain, how much it might cost or be inconvenienced or taken advantage of. It just loves and loves and loves. It's not emotion-based. It's a decision. (laughs) It doesn't fall in and out depending on moods and all of that or behavior. It loves for the sake of loving, guided only by the good of the beloved. And guess what? (laughs) The good of us was this, that he could die for somebody who was his enemy formally. So God's love includes enemy love, and that's the kind of love, is why it's king virtue, that brought the Son of God down into this world to do what Romans 5.8 says here, you see at just the right time when we're still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his agape for us in this, that while we were enemies, powerless, corrupted, hostile, sinners, estranged from him and happy about it, Christ died for us. That's an amazing statement. And yeah, so it's the greatest love, right? What did Jesus say in John chapter 15? The night he was betrayed at the Last Supper, he said, you know what? There is no such thing as greater love than this, that somebody lay down their life for their friend. And then he said, and you are my friends. Wow. And he looked at Judas. Judas was at the table. And he died for Judas and all the Judases in the world. So the highest virtue led the greatest of all beings to give the most valuable gift. And now we move on. Uh, Paul called it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, an unspeakable gift. He thanked God for this inexpressible gift. So how, how, how do words explain, I came not to be served, God speaking, in a human body? But I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to get to gift my life as a ransom payment. That's in Mark chapter 10 and 45. So in order to understand how God the Father gives God the Son, facilitated by God the Spirit, the three in one, let's talk about the Trinity real fast. It's in the Bible from cover to cover, and right from the jump, God expresses himself as a 
plural, a collective noun that uses singular verbs. This is what I'm talking about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The word God there is not the singular El. It's the plural Elohim, which means the gods, with a singular verb, always. Let us make man in our image. Or, hear, O Israel, the Lord your gods is one. So right from the beginning, he revealed himself as this collective noun with this singular verb, meaning the family is, not our, the family is going to move to Tennessee. Sorry. (laughs) It's always there, isn't it? The, the family are, no, the family is. There's multiple, so it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a collective noun using a singular verb. He is three and he is one. The verse that will help you really quickly is let us make man in our image. And up comes a being that has the image of God, Adam. How? As God is three and one, so is Adam and so are you. You are body, soul, and spirit. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says it. There's three, but one. If you try to separate, the body is not the spirit, and the spirit is not the soul. The soul is not the body. But you try to separate them, you got nobody. Because they are integrated as one, but three. Father, the father initiates the plan. The son executes the plan. The Spirit facilitates the plan, the three in one. The Jews came to Jesus and said, God is our father. The father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's our father. He says, oh no, 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 no. If you have the father, you have to have me too. Because we come as a package. All right? He didn't quite say it that way. Uh, But it's father, son, and Holy Spirit or nothing. Because that's who he is. So why am I telling you that? Because this is what happened. John's Gospel, chapter 1, this is how he sent his son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is how John says it, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later we hear, and the Word that was with God and was God, becomes flesh and dwells among us. Distinct from God, the Father, God the Son is equal to God and comes and takes on flesh through a human womb. He is now the God-man sent on a mission to save us from our sins. And you know what happened there. I read a story about a boy and his dad were kicking around a soccer ball in weather like this. It had been like that for three weeks in the Contra Costa County over there. And they're kicking the ball and no warning. The earth opened up the front yard, sinkhole developed and sucked the boy down. And he was down quite a ways, but alive and calling out to his father. The only way that boy's coming out is somebody has to come down and lift that boy up. And that spiritually speaking, what happened in the garden of paradise, the Lord said, watch out for that tree. Don't go near. Don't eat of it. 
the day you disobey, you will die. And the tempter came, she ate, he ate, they ate, and we ate because we were in them. And the ground opened up and down we all went. And death spread to all of us and curses over our heads, curses in the world. Every evil thing can be traced back to that moment. And God says, don't worry, I'll come down. And he stepped down by giving his only son. What? The wage of sin is death. So to pay our way, he needs a human body. That's why he became one of us. To pay our debt, it's life for life. And no human being who is a debtor already can pay for debtors. So he needed a human body that was perfect without sin so he can be a perfect offering and a perfect exchange. And there was the idea. Let us become one of them. And Jesus did. And laid down on that cross and took all the sins of the world on him, died, and tasted death for everybody. This is the wonder of it all, so that we wouldn't have to be. You know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, after that horrible punk, Edwin, uh, goes over to the White Witch's side. He's just somebody you really love to not like. And, uh, you know, he, he betrays his sister and brother for a little um, Turkish delight. Oh, yes, uh, you're going to sell my soul and everybody else because I want Turkish delight. And you fill in the blank for your Turkish delight. But that's what we do. And Susan says to Aslan, oh, and great alarm when they find out he's joined ranks with the White Witch. Can anything be done to save him? And Aslan says, all that will be done can be, all that can be done will be done, but it may be harder than you think. So love stepped in and Jesus stepped down. It's the greatest of all gifts that he would bleed out and be flogged, that we would be whole. Jesus said it is finished, paid in full. That is the greatest gift. Moving on, the priceless gift wasn't meant to be for a select few, though we get slandered as such that it's only for Christians, and you Christians have the corner market on salvation. And it's like, oh no, the invitation is to whosoever. That word is a big word. It means anybody. And that forever says, uh, no behavior needs to qualify you. It's just free of charge because he paid. We can't pay. He says, no one is good. No one seeks God. You're all in that sinkhole. And the only thing you could do is hope for a rescue and say yes. When the rescuer says, do you want to be airlifted out? This is how you get saved. You say, yes, I believe. That's how you do it. Whosoever, man, that's crazy. Jesus told the story this way. It's a wide welcome. Jesus replied with a story. He said, listen, there's this man who prepared a great feast. And actually, in the other version, he tells it, he says a king is preparing for the wedding of his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet's ready, I'll say. All the sins paid for, he's paid the way for every single person he hands the invite to, paid. Come on in, no qualification. I'm a murderer. Oh, no problem. Repent, turn from that, 
because you've been paid for. Your murder's been paid for. Come on in. Yeah. That's anybody. That's whosoever, right? A murderer is a whosoever. He qualifies. Yeah. And, and pick someone you loathe worse than a murderer. They qualified because he's paid. They're paid for. So he can say, come on in. This is crazy stuff. But they all begin making excuses. Stop it. One says, I just bought a field. I got inspected. So I'm out. Uh, another says, I just bought five pairs of, of oxen and got to check them out. Please excuse me. Another says, I just got married, so I can't come. Business, life, blessings, you know. My wife's, you know, not feeling well. I can't wait. Whatever. You know, <laughs> sorry about that. My husband, whatever. Uh, I mean, the wife would be speaking. Uh, the servant, <laughs> the sir. You guys are really difficult today. The servant returned and told his master, you know, they're not coming, boss. The, the master's furious. What? After I, I sent my son, he, he died. He's six hours, like, hanging there, suffocating to death so that they could come. No, go quickly in the streets and find everybody, anybody, poor, crippled, blind, lame. And that's just to say, those who are down and out, those who are corrupted and, and spiritually blind and morally bankrupt. And uh, just, just after the sermon had done this, he said, there's still room because they're so hard-hearted with all of their excuses. And he says, go out and look under the hedges and urge anyone is that make them. Just beg them. And that's what Paul says. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, please. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become right with him. So get right with him. It's free. It's paid. He invites you. And so, yeah, if there's an empty place in heaven, it's not the problem isn't because God excluded somebody. It's because they ins- excluded themselves. I was at Mary's in line, uh, and there were several Jehovah's Witnesses in line with me, and I could just tell after all these years. And, and, uh, and I overheard them anyway. And so I started talking to them, and they believed that outside of the kingdom hall, you have no hope. And I knew where the conversation was going to. And I said, yeah, I just came from church. It was a Sunday afternoon. And she said, oh, and what church do you attend? Very much setting me up for the, well, unless you're in the kingdom hall, you're out. So I said, I go to the church of whosoever. And she said, whosoever? I never heard of that church. And I said, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And uh, that's the truth of it. That's the truth of it. It's whosoever. It's pretty wide, that's for sure. And so, yeah, we have some solid evidence that anybody is eligible. Matthew, (laughs) greedy Matthew, he had a problem with money. Samson had a lust problem. So did King David. Mary Magdalene was filled with demons. And she becomes the first witness of the resurrection above Peter, James, and John's honor. Whosoever. Mary said, that would be me. Saul of Tarsus killing Christians. Whosoever. 
He had a change of heart. A thief on a cross. Minutes from death. Because he's an armed robber who killed somebody. And he's hanging on a cross next to Jesus. And in the beginning he's mocking. And he has a change of heart. And Jesus said, today, bingo, you, me, paradise, today. Why? He's a whosoever. So, yeah, the easiest escape of all, now, uh, whoever believes in him, it's super easy. And I believe that part of the weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who miss the flight, as it were, and end up in an unspeakable place. The reason they're so upset is because they knew they were invited all their lives, and they knew how easy it was simply trust. The word believe here, pistos in the Greek, it doesn't necessarily just stop with intellectual. It's a heart word of trusting, of surrendering. In fact, it doesn't say believe in him, it says believe onto him. So it's like falling. It's, it's not just saying, I believe in God like half of America does. That What they mean to say, as I say often, is I believe there is a God. I don't personally know him. I haven't had a supernatural saving encounter with him. I haven't believed onto him. I just think he's out there somewhere. And I'm totally cool with that. That doesn't save you. The devil believes in God. He won't be in heaven. And so, yeah, all religions are not the same um, they, they require you to work. You've got to do something in every man-made religion. In Judaism, which is of God in its pre-Christian state, got tweaked into them thinking we've got to keep all the commands. Right? There's 613, and there are some Jews trying to do that. Muslims have five pillars to obey, and even after you obey it, if you ask them if they're going to heaven, they go, I don't know. Right? So Catholics have some sacraments to keep them busy and to work their way. Um, Buddhists have an eightfold path. It goes on and on and on. So religion, it, look, in the heart of everybody, we know he's out there, and we know we've got to get there. So we devise the bladders and, and pick the plan. Christianity's different. It's the plan that's, that involves a ladder, but it comes down from heaven. And it's God coming down in the form of Christ that says, you can't do anything. You're down in the hole. You're lifeless. You're without God and without hope in this world. But I'll come down and I'll rescue you. I'll do it all for you. And all I require of you is just say yes just say yes to life and no to death. Is it that hard? And yeah, it is. And so it's by faith you've been saved through grace. It's not of yourself, not by your own goodness or merit, lest any man boast, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. It's by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Easy peasy, you can be saved from the greatest tragedy of all here. So we see the most dramatic rescue now. Wow, perishing. Unbelievable. When I was in my study this week and I got to this part, I paused. And I got nervous. I got almost nauseous. Because I have to explain this and the reality of perishing 
It's beyond words, isn't it? Now, it's an awful concept, and it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews chapter 10 and 31. And Jesus said, <laughs> or, or the Holy Spirit, speaking through Ezekiel, truly as I live, says the Lord, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. I want them to turn and be saved. And he's done everything possible that he can do. But it is still appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment, and then the sentencing phase of sins committed against God, which is called the second death uh, in Revelation chapter 20. And all the horrible depictions of a place called hell or Gehenna, the garbage dump that burns with continual flame and black smoke and all of that stuff doesn't come to us via some crazy uh, Baptist preacher. Nope. Now, he, a crazy Baptist preacher may have gotten hold of the words, but it came from Jesus. And maybe that made the Baptist preacher a little bit crazy because it can make me a little bit crazy too. Um, so suffice it, suffice it to say... When I meet a person, and I have met several, that say, I can't be a Christian because of the whole hell thing. Okay, here's what I say. You're on the ship. The ship's going down. Get in the lifeboat, and then we'll figure it out. Get yourself off of the destination of the path, right? And then what if you got to heaven, and you went, oh, that's, that makes sense. And it will. It will make perfect sense for you and for me, because it's of God. So here's three sentences about hell. I guess human life was more serious and sacred than any of us realize, number one. Number two, I think sin is more evil than any of us can ever imagine. And three, I guess God is infinitely more holy than any of us can fathom. So do yourself a favor. Trust Jesus now. Get out of harm's way. And then we'll figure it out. Amen? Amen. And then, uh, yeah, <laughs> avoid the greatest tragedy and let the most dramatic rescue take place so that you have the most priceless possession. Here we go. We finish up now with everlasting life. Now, the Greek is not emphasizing longevity of life here. It's more quality of life. In fact, uh, funny, Pastor Dave and I were in uh, Sebastopol, and we got into a conversation with some woman, and uh, she was like, I don't even want eternal life. Oh, that sounds horrible to me. And we both started saying, oh, no, no, no. It's not how you think it. It's a, it's a different life. It's a, it, it won't be a life corrupted and stained by sin with evil oppression and all kinds of natural disasters in a world that's under a curse because the curse will be lifted. Jesus appears, does away with the bad guys and all evil. Boom. One word out of his mouth. Done. Sets up a throne. This living water starts coming from it, renewing the earth to garden like uh, paradise. Jesus' words, like the Garden of Eden. No more poisonous things, no more uh, crying, death, sorrow, and mourning. 
For the old things are gone, the new, the new is come. And he sits on the throne and he quotes himself saying, I am saying, I am making all things new. Now, that's the eternal life that will never end. Only goodness with bodies. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. He will give us a glorious body like his own. That, you know what that means? That means no more dieting. <laughs> that means no more, and there's eating. That's going to be a lot of fun, i got to say. Yeah, no more exercising and all of that stuff. But you know what? What is there is going to be amazing, and we're going to want to be a part of it as the wonderful counselor, almighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace takes his seat on the throne he's always had. And then he's going to rule the world. He's going to rule the world. And the world will look like what he intended it to be, and so will you. You will be who God knows you to be and created you to be and came into this world for that. King David closing out not with Psalm 16. He says, Lord, you made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. Eternal pleasures await us. Wow. Eternal joys. Man, we see through a, a, through a window that's fogged up right now, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, but he's given us a glimpse, hasn't he? There's a lot of shine, there's a lot of brilliance, there's a lot of bejeweled things, crystal seas and bejeweled walls, and a rainbow emerald uh, around the throne. But this is the big delight, is to see the one who made us. As the song goes, to reach out and touch the face of the one who made me. To see those scars... Oh man, no wonder he has to wipe away every tear because we're just going to be overwhelmed with the greatest possession of all, everlasting life with the, and you can put the, the uh, points back up there, with the greatest being who has this, this most supreme virtue of love, the priceless gift of having given himself for us, the widest invitation. How did I end up here? Yeah, I said yes. <laughs> the easiest escape, boom, I believed, and you believe the most dramatic rescue and the most precious possession. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, it just is something we live and breathe, this John 3.16, but it has amazing value to us. It's just mind-blowing, God, that we find ourselves in this situation, not because of our good effort, but because of your wonderful mercy. Uh, continue to speak to us and wow us and help those who don't know you to just simply surrender by faith and have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.